0: Truly, I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Miss Tex,
1: sure is good to see you. We've missed you. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your grace this morning shown to us. In a thousand ways, most of which we haven't even acknowledged. Thankful for your grace and your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You sent your son to reclaim ruined sinners like us. In our place, condemned he stood. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah what a savior, what a redeemer, what a king. Father, we continue to pray that you would end the war. We pray for justice and for protection for the Ukrainian people. Father, we pray for all those affected by the many fires around us, God, that you would use this as an opportunity to draw people to yourselves, to grant faith to those who don't know you, to strengthen the faith of those who do, that it would ultimately be a silver lining to loosen the grip on this world and hope for eternity. I pray for this as an opportunity for nearby churches to show themselves strong. We pray for continued fruit from the trips, the three trips from spring break, God, that as your word was spoken and shared, that it would bear fruit not only immediately, but for weeks and months to come. Father, we give you thanks for the healthy birth of Samuel McDermott, child of one of our partners. We're grateful for a healthy baby, healthy mama. We pray for continued adjustment for them, and we pray for Samuel that you would save him at a very, very early age, give him a new heart. Father, we pray for our members here of Southside Baptist Church. Would you cause our love for you and for one another to abound more and more? with knowledge of your word and and with all discernment that we may approve what is excellence, what is pure. May we be pure. May we be blameless for the day of your return, filled with the fruit that comes from being united to Christ and counted righteous in him. That we would be a people of praise. And Lord, as we turn to some hard words of Jesus, would you give us receptive hearts Would you grant us the kindness of the long view? Would you help us to see our little 80 years or whatever it may be in light of all eternity, help us to see that Jesus is worth it. We pray it in his name, amen. We continue our journey, our long journey through the gospel according to Matthew, and we are now in chapter 16. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 771. And these verses, really in last week's verses, are a vital turning point in the gospel of Matthew. Really, we move from part one to part two. Part one of the gospel of Matthew goes from chapter one all the way to chapter 16, verse 20, and part two begins this morning in verse 21. So congratulations on making it through part one of the gospel according to Matthew. Part two is shorter than part one, and it documents Jesus' journey now to Jerusalem. And in many ways, we could title it Jesus versus Jerusalem, or perhaps better, Jerusalem versus Jesus. And though it's not what we might expect, what we see really is his royal procession. Last week, we looked at the person of Jesus. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the one to whom the scriptures pointed, the one bringing the story of Israel to its culmination. Really, in other words, he's the king. That's really how we ought to think of Jesus first and foremost. He's the king. Remember, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a royal title. And so every time you see, think, hear, speak, Jesus Christ, you should think King Jesus, which fits his fundamental message, right? More than anything, this is what Jesus talked about, was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom, as we saw in Matthew chapter four, the kingdom of God is at hand. God is taking charge of his world. And as he does so, He's doing it like he always said he would. That's why we've been looking at all these Old Testament passages through his king, through his Christ, through his Messiah. Jesus is that king. And we saw last week, he's not just the Messiah, he's the son of God, he's God incarnate, he's Emmanuel, God with us, fully man, fully God. And so last week we saw his person and this week we begin to see his work and his call. So let's consider this morning, cross and kingdom and then cross and calling. So first, cross and kingdom. Look at Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, here's transitional words, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Attorney for it. He must head to Jerusalem and he must suffer at the hands of Israel's leadership and he will be killed by them, but he'll be raised. He'll be raised from the dead on the third day. And so Jesus begins to make his messianic mission more clear. What is it that he is about? But he's going to have to keep on doing that. He's going to do that a couple more times before we get to the cross in Matthew. Look at verse 22. And Peter Took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "Far be it from you, Lord! This shall never happen to you." Peter ain't having it. Jesus is talking about this suffering and death stuff. Peter's like, "No, no, no! Let me, Jesus, 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 come here, take him away. Listen, uh, I know you're tired. You've been doing a great job. You must be weary from the journey. Let me give you a little life coaching. This is not how this works." Messiahs don't suffer. Actually, it wasn't that gentle. The word is rebuke. It's actually a really strong word Peter uses. It's the same word that he used, that Jesus used when he told the storm to be still. It's the same word he's gonna use in our next chapter to to rebuke a demon. And so Peter's just upset. He's not having it. This is not gonna happen. This is not the way it's supposed to go down. It's easy to poke fun at Peter. We gotta understand that there was no, at the time of Jesus here, the time of Peter, There was no Jewish conception of a suffering Messiah. Those just didn't go together. That's an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, Microsoft Works, (laughs) government worker, especially today, airline schedule, suffering Messiah. No, no, that just, just was not a category that they have. The Messiah was to come in and he was to be a militaristic Messiah. He was gonna come in with violence and obliterate Rome and elevate israel he was going to come in he wasn't going to love his enemies he was going to hate them and destroy them they were all wrong about what the kingdom was going to look like about the nature of the kingdom but even the timing of the kingdom they thought jesus was going to come in and and go to war and you know that's why some of the ambitious ones wanted to be at the right and the left hand of jesus they're wrong about the nature they were wrong about the time because remember in matthew 13 jesus says it's very slow actually god is taking charge it's not the way they thought And it's not in the timing, because as Jesus taught us in his parables of the kingdom, it's like leaven that slowly works its way through bread. Or like a small seed that eventually grows very large. Peter says, never, Lord. (laughs) Two words that also don't go together, right? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you, King It can't. That doesn't work because then we won't win. Then Rome will continue to rule over your people. That's not happening. And so Peter is misunderstood. Really, all the disciples were. We'll see it again and again. They had just missed this huge prophetic stream in the Bible that spoke of a suffering Messiah. It's here. They just missed it. They misread the Bible and ended up crucifying their Messiah. Think of Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes, Psalm 69, probably most importantly, Isaiah 53 and the suffering servants. Well, how does Jesus reply to Peter's rebuke? Look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Four, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I don't know that stronger words ever came from the lips of Jesus. He is very serious about his impending death. Jesus turns to Peter, and the idea is he turns on him. And he calls Peter Satan. Why so remarkably severe Because it's vital for Peter, and it's vital for his disciples, and it's vital for us to understand that the kingdom only comes through the cross. If there is no cross, there is no kingdom. Peter wants to move straight on to glory, but in God's economy, it's not the order. In God's economy, it's suffering then, and only then, glory. Get behind me, Satan. Why, is, what, why Satan? Why Satanic? Why's Peter being Satanic here? Well, this language is actually really similar to what we've seen. We've already seen this encounter with the Satan. Flip back with me several pages to Matthew chapter 4. You remember that? Feels like that was 2016. The temptation of Jesus where he goes to battle with the Satan... Matthew 4, look at verse 8. Just to pick up one of, the, one of the temptations. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these... I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Actually, it's the same word. I wish it was translated the same way in the ESV. It's the same word that he says to Peter. Be gone, Satan. Be gone, Peter, behind me. You see, both Satan and Peter, they wanted the victory without the suffering. Jesus will, in fact, inherit all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But he must defeat the accuser through the cross. It's cross, then crown. This king will be enthroned and he will wear a crown, but for now it will be a crown of thorns. As Augustine said, the Lord establishes his sovereignty from the cursed tree. So he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not understanding the kingdom. You're not understanding the way things are going to be. You're a hindrance to me. You're a stumbling block. And remember, just five verses earlier, Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, very quickly, the rock becomes a stumbling block. You're viewing things merely from a human point of view rather than from God's point of view. You've got a man-centered view of things instead of a God-centered view of things. He had a wrong conception of the king. And of the kingdom, he didn't realize that that all comes through suffering and through self-denial. Well, second, the cross and calling. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus the King says, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, it's an invitation. By the way, that word disciple, it just means follower. It means learner. My favorite way to think of it is actually an apprentice. If anyone wants to be my apprentice, you've got to do three things. First, deny himself. It's really another way of saying repentance, right? Because repentance is just saying no to self and yes to God. It's dropping our agenda in taking up Jesus' agenda? Self denial. Death to self. It's to disassociate the self from its own selfish interests. Loyalty to the king must supersede self preservation. So he's got to deny himself. Second, he's got to take up his cross, which, first and foremost, remember, we've always got to remind ourselves, means that we must be willing to die for the sake of Jesus. In fact, It's not in Scripture, but tradition tells us that three of these hearers would be martyred, crucified, in fact, Peter, Andrew, and Philip. Literally took up their cross for the sake of Jesus. Peter refused to be crucified right side up. He was crucified upside down. He didn't feel like he was worthy to be executed in the same way that his Lord was. And so we always got to remember what the cross is. The cross is so normal for us. We have it everywhere. But in the first century, you wouldn't have it on a wall. In the first century... It was the worst form of execution, and it was extremely common. It was the most cruel, the most shameful. It was so agonizing, we've coined a new term, excruciating from the cross, excruce. And it wasn't for just anybody. It was reserved for the lowest class and the worst criminals, political rebels and slaves, public disgrace. No one wanted to be associated with a crucified criminal. It was an honor-shame culture, and there is no other way to be shamed than this, worse than this. We've domesticated it just because it's so normal to us, but no one would be wearing a cross necklace in the first century. It'd be like me wearing a you know, big old chain with an electric chair on it. But that doesn't even really get at it because an electric chair is usually somewhat <laughs> private, isn't it? And, and somewhat designed to be quick. Well, the cross was neither of those. It was public disgrace, usually lining the roads to Rome and it took a very long time. It was horrific. Jesus says, if you would be my apprentice, if you would be my disciple, you must take up your cross. You must be willing to let it all go. You must be willing to die for him and you must die to self. Again, our lives are to be cross-shaped, cruciform. Sacrifice the self for the Lord and for the good of his people. The cross is the power for our salvation, but it's also to be the pattern of our lives. We're both saved by the cross and then we're to be shaped by the cross. It's a whole new way of being in the world where I'm off the throne and Jesus is. And I enter a room and my thought is, how can I give of self for the sake of others? It's the others focused life. As Bonhoeffer put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We've got to deny self. We've got to take up our cross. And then Jesus says, you must follow me. Well, what does that mean? Well, what have we just seen in the Gospel of Matthew? To follow Jesus is to be with him, union with him, communion with him. It's to become like him, but it's also to obey what he said, to do what he he did and to do what he said. And just to leave it in Matthew, I mean, flip back with me. Let's just stroll through here real quick. What have we seen? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, remember Matthew 1 and in many ways 2 and 3 are really all about the fact that the scriptures point to Jesus. It was all heading to him. He's the fulfillment. That's why Matthew uses that word fulfillment 13 times. He wants us to see that the story of Jesus is the culmination of the story of Israel. And then we see in a battle with the enemy. So to be like Jesus, we've got to realize that we are in a battle. It's just what life is. And how do we combat the enemy? Well, he quotes the scripture. So we go to God's truth to win. And then he begins his ministry and tells us we need to be fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men we have the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? To follow him? Well, we follow his teaching. And just to summarize in Matthew 5, we have these beatitudes about the way of the kingdom, which is counterintuitive, countercultural. We're to be salt and light. Chapter 5, verse 13. 5.17, we're to have a high view of God's word. No one had a higher view of the Bible than Jesus himself. 5.21, we're to have a handle on our anger. Not just murder, but heart level. Jesus is after our hearts. He doesn't want people that are shiny on the outside. He wants people that are being transformed on the inside. Verse 27 it's one thing not to commit adultery. Jesus cares about the heart. He doesn't even want us lusting. 531, divorce. Disciples of Jesus do everything in their power to stay married. They fight for healthy marriages. 533, they tell the truth. 538, they don't retaliate. 543, they love their enemies. Chapter 6, they give to the needy, but they don't give in a way that they're seen. Again, God cares about what's happening, not publicly, but privately. We're a people of prayer. We're a people who fast. We're a people who are living lives of simplicity. Chapter 6, verse 19, we don't store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. We're a people, verse 25 of chapter 6, that fight anxiety. It's not okay to be a victim. Jesus says, do not be anxious. And so we trust the promises of God. Chapter 7, we judge ourselves before we judge others. Chapter 7, verse 12, we put others first. We want to be treated how we treat others how we would want to be treated. Chapter 7, verse 24, we build our house on the rock, which is the teaching of Jesus. Really, chapters 8 and 9, we see again and again, Jesus' preferential love for the marginalized, the poor, the down and out, those who know their need better than anyone else. Chapter 10, we realize persecutions will come. Really, we could summarize all this. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to worship him. It's to worship the one who can cast out demons and heal the sick and calm the storm. We're to follow him. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. We follow Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must do these three things. Then I self take up the cross, follow him and follow him. Are these three things easy? Oh, apparently for you, not so much for me. Why? Well, because the great three enemies of the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of these calls are hard because of what the world says, what our own flesh says, and ultimately the, behind them both, in some ways, the devil. First, the world is opposed to self-denial, especially today in our unique cultural moments. This air we breathe, the worldview known as expressive individualism. The individual reigns supreme, and whatever you feel is right. And if anyone questions your authenticity, cancel them. So the world makes this really hard because the world's message is the opposite of self denial. The The world's message is self fulfillment. You do you. YOLO. No restraints. Here's my favorite. To those who write their own stories, this bud's for you. (laughs) Give me a break. Jesus calls us to do the opposite. We don't write our own stories. He's written it for us. We deny ourselves. Really, the Christian life couldn't be more countercultural in this regard today. What was once considered the deadliest of all sins, pride, is now celebrated be you embrace yourself express yourself promote yourself you 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 the author george mcdonald said that hell runs according to one principle i am my own the theme song of hell frank sinatra i did it my way the opposite of self-denial so c.s lewis says there are only two kinds of people in the end those who say to god thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So we've just got to know, we've got to fight, we've got to be really skeptical of the messaging we receive all over the place. There's a really popular survey given to college students, it's been given to college students actually for decades, and they're not told what they're given. And in 2006, some of the results, which, man, I I want some updated stats on this because 2006 feels like a millennia ago in our cultural context, but they were given a a survey and responses to statements like this. I am an extraordinary person. I am more capable than other people. Everybody likes to hear my stories. If I ruled the world, it would be a better place. And so again, it's been given to students for decades and there was a 30, you know what it actually is? It's called the narcissistic personality inventory. (laughs) And there was a 30% increase in narcissism over the last 30 years, 30%. In the 50s, 1950s, 12% agreed with this statement. I am an important person, 12%. In the 80s, which still is very dated, 30 years later, 80% agreed with the statement, I am an important person, 12 to 80. Today, it's gotta be like 110. It just blows it out. But not only the world, our own flesh, our own, that part of us that's still fallen, that indwelling sin bucks against the call to self-denial. Our own flesh wants us on the throne rather than Christ because the DNA of sin is self-centeredness. That's why the prophet Isaiah described it as we've all gone our own way, each turned to his own way. And it all started right in the Garden of Eden where it all began, where all the problems began. I will be like God. I will be the one who says what's right and wrong. Me displace him, I don't wanna be ruled by him, I wanna rule myself. So there's the world that makes it hard to follow Jesus. There's the flesh that makes it hard to follow Jesus. And then there's the devil, the enemy of all things holy. He wants you believing YOLO. He wants you living for this life only. J.C. Ryle says this, the flesh must be daily crucified. The devil must be daily resisted. The world must be daily overcome. If anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow me. Luke actually adds that word daily. Luke chapter nine. Then Jesus gives us the reason. Look at verse 25 of Matthew 16. Four, little important connecting word. Because whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, if you try to focus on you, if you try to focus your life on self-focus and self-preservation, Jesus says you will lose it. You won't find what you're looking for if you follow the path of the world and the flesh and the devil. Actually, listen, Jesus loves you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus is for your happiness even more than you are. He just knows you're only going to find it in Him. Don't lose it. Don't lose your life by trying to find it focused on you. Remember way back in Matthew 5, those Beatitudes? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The word just means happy. A recent translation translates it blissful what Jesus actually wants. He doesn't want you losing your life. He wants you to lose it for him. And then you'll find it. As Augustine put it, our hearts remain restless until they find their rest in him. It's only in him. Jesus says, if you try to do it your way, you're going to lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. You want life? I don't have to ask that. I know you do. Everyone in here does. You want happiness. Jesus says, give it up. Give up your life for the sake of Jesus and you'll find your deepest desires fulfilled, but fulfilled in him. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice, he's paraphrasing Jesus here. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true selves. Only by losing your old life will you find new life. And he gives us another reason. Look at verse 26. Four: What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is pleading with us. Oh, even if you get everything you think you wanted, it won't be worth losing your soul. Jesus is saying, we need to adjust the scales. It actually will not profit you if you save your life. Why? Why is this the case? Well, Jesus gives another reason in verse 27. Four, because the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. Why? Because judgment is coming. Because you're going to meet Jesus as the conquering king one day. I wonder if we believe that. You know, we spend so much time, don't we? Worrying about the evaluation of others and the opinion of peers, parents, kids grandkids, co-workers, supposed social media audience, and we don't think about this reality, the one to whom we will all give an account. The Son of Man will come. But actually, I think contrary to most majority here, I'm in the minority, contrary to the majority of interpreters, though, I don't think this is about the second coming, actually. I don't think this is about final judgment. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus tells us in the very next verse. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In the case we're tempted to take this less serious than we should, Jesus says, truly, I tell you this. And this is one of those verses where you'll find atheists especially, but even sometimes liberal uh, Christian scholars that say Jesus was wrong. Jesus was wrong here. Or maybe they'll say the, ba- the, the Bible's wrong, maybe. Sometimes they might say Matthew, but Mark and Luke say the exact same thing with the exact same time indicator, so we've got to ask what's going on. We actually need to take this seriously. If verses 27 and 28 are about the second coming, Jesus was wrong. Why? Because he says to his disciples, there are some of you standing here who will not die until this happens. Pretty sure, two things, Jesus hasn't come as final judge. I'm pretty sure all his disciples are dead. Look at it again, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But friends, this is not about the second coming. This is about the installation of Jesus as king after his resurrection. So Jesus was not wrong. He was emphatically right. What we miss, we think it sounds like second coming, frankly, because we just don't know our Bibles well enough. But when we understand the Old Testament background of what he's saying, it makes perfect sense. And this language of the son of man coming in glory is right out of a really important book at this time called the book of Daniel. And it's Daniel chapter 7. Let me read a few passages. Daniel 7 is about, it's this vision. It's apocalyptic, so it's kind of weird for us. Talks about beasts and monsters and statues and whatnot. But Daniel 7 is a vision about the coming of the kingdom of God. Daniel has a vision of four monsters trampling the earth. And then God judges them in this court scene that I'll put up for you. I want you to see this. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 giving you some Old Testament background to show you that Jesus was not wrong here. Daniel says, I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is right after the four monsters. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands a thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because the sound of the great words and the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And here's where it gets relevant these next couple of verses. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given authority and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, Should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So there's this figure of a Son of Man who's given all authority. But what's really important for us to see is this coming of the Son of Man is a coming from earth to heaven, not from heaven to earth. This royal figure, this human figure, ascends to receive authority. This is not a descense. And then Daniel asked for an interpretation. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And then, speaking of the fourth beast that Daniel asked about, verse 26 says this. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Jesus this is one of favorite, Jesus' favorite passages, is why he calls himself the Son of Man. And what we need to understand, and this is a passage about vindication about enthronements, about Jesus becoming king. It's really a prophecy of new creation, isn't it? It's this human figure who's made to reign over a world previously ruled by beasts. Think Genesis 1, and this son of man ascends, he's vindicated, and he receives all authority. The kingdom's given to him, and the kingdom consists now of all nations. Talk about fuel for missions. It's really what we saw last week if you were here in Psalm 2, right? The nations are raging against the Lord and his anointed, Christos, Christ. But God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And he tells the king, who is the son, he will rule and inherit all the nations. So Jesus was not wrong. And by the way, this is just consistent teaching all over the place. So you don't think I'm crazy. I realize this may be new to some of you. Flip back with me to Matthew chapter 10. We've seen it before and we'll see it again. It's a persistent theme in all the Gospels. But notice what he says in chapter 10, verse 23, speaking about the mission. Persecution's going to come. When they, 10 23, when they persecute you, disciples, he's speaking to his disciples here, in one town, flee to the next. For truly, there's that statement again. He wants us to take this seriously. I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. They wouldn't even make it through their own land before the Son of Man is vindicated, comes from Earth to heaven. We'll see it again in chapter we saw it in chapter 16. We'll see it again in chapter 24. Flip over there, Matthew 24. Geeking out on you a little bit because it's really important that we see Jesus was not a liar. Look at chapter twenty-four, verse thirty. Here's the language: Then will appear in heaven a sign, twenty-four thirty, of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We've been trained to think that second coming, but if we knew Daniel, we would realize it's an ascension and a thronement. and Jesus tells us, look at verse 34, when will this happen? Truly, there he says it again, I want you to hear me. I say to you, this generation, roughly 40 years, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Daniel seven, but that's not all. Flip over to chapter 26, verse 63. It's all over the place. It's one of the main messages is that the son of God will be installed as king. He will be vindicated. He will be given all authority. All nations will flow to him. Look at chapter 26, verse 63. Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then we have the great commission, all authority. It's actually quoted right out of Daniel seven has been given to me. That's also quoted right out of Daniel seven. All authority right after his resurrection has been given to me. And on this basis, church, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And what do we do? We baptize, we teach, and we tell them to observe all that Jesus commanded. We spread his rule. The king has been installed. And Zion, the nations are flowing to it and his authority now Is spread as we go when we tell people to obey the king. Daniel 7 is about the ascension, vindication, enthronements. It's not about the second coming. Here's how Luke puts it. I love the way Luke kind of sums it up for us. Luke 9, 27, Jesus says, I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I take the time here to explain a little bit about this for one, because it's a passage I think we often get wrong. Two, because it's important, very important that Jesus was not wrong because his second coming didn't occur in the lifetime of his disciples. But also three, to show you that the message of the Bible is the same from beginning to end. The Bible's one story of God reestablishing his rule over the world and he's doing so through his son, the suffering Messiah King. Did you notice the language, how it kind of flipped there? Notice what he said, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's been kingdom of God often, but here we learn that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. He has all authority. So how do we respond? Well, first, we've, we, we need to re- not become like Peter, ultimately not become like Satan, and realize that the Christian life is suffering, then glory. It's cross, then crown. This is what the prosperity gospel gets wrong. Prosperity gospel talks a lot about glory and health, wealth, prosperity. They're right. They're just wrong on the timetable. That's coming at the eschaton, not now. It's suffering, then absolute prosperity. Resurrection bodies on a resurrected world. It's cross, then crown of course, we need to obey Jesus, right? We need to accept the call to deny ourselves, take up his cross, follow him, drop our agenda and take on his agenda. This is what really matters. I mean, I would just ask you, friend, what are you living for? What is your why? Is your life and your resources, your money, your time, your energy consumed with that which is ultimately going to fade, it's going to perish, it's going to pass away? I was reading last night a book. He's not a Christian. He's a Stoic philosopher. And this paragraph struck me, and I want to read it to you. Again, he's not a Christian, but he's writing about the good life, a guide to the good life. And he says this He says, and hear this. In fact, would you just, just close your eyes with me and just hear this? There's a danger that you will mislive mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, You squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Four. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Pray with me. Father, we confess we are indeed distracted. And ultimately, that's what the world and the flesh and the devil wants is just a life of distraction, life of doing lots of things until at the end of the day, We're on our deathbed and we've lived a life that's not for you. We've lived a life that's focused on self. And so would you give us the grace to deny ourselves and follow Jesus? The one who has been given because of his resurrection all authority. The one who is now in the process of expanding his rule through the church and ultimately we will have a people consisting of all nations. Lord, would we recalibrate our lives and live lives focused on you, focused on bringing your rule to bear in our little area of responsibility that you've given us. That we might be a people that faithfully implement the victory of Jesus, embody his rule, show the world what it means and looks like to be a people who live in obedience to King Jesus. We need your help to do it. So we ask for it. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.